Hey, welcome to Cameras or Whatever, the podcast for working photographers. I'm Tyler Stallman. I'm Jordan Drake. And we've got a very special two-parter episode, an extended episode where we go into extreme detail about the Canon 5D Mark IV. Um, this is the episode I was thinking about when I wanted to start a camera podcast. I basically, I wanted to just dive really deep into the camera that has affected my career the most and that I see affecting professionals careers really often. It's the, it's the, it's the first pro camera. A lot of people get, it's been really significant historically. And, um, that's, that's kind of where we want to start is the history of this. Yeah. Series. I think for working photographers, the 5d series, if you're in the Canon camp has, and we've seen back in the film days, someone always had a, you know, one series camera when digital hit the mm-hmm. five series camera was the tool of working professionals. The ones became very specialized just for journalism, sports, and everything else was dominated by the five D uh, lineup. And I think it's had a real up and down history. That's really interesting. Yeah. Before the five D, the things you were looking at were all, you had to make a really serious investment to do professional photography and um, do it digitally. Yeah. You, know, you, you had to go to the one series, you had to spend $10,000. If full frame was, uh, and it was still the standard at that point, yeah. the, the bar for entry was much, much higher. Yeah. And, and yeah, you should be shooting uh, full frame. I've got the DP review of the Mark I pulled up in front of me, and uh, its its direct competitor that they were comparing it to at the time is the EOS 20D. Right. Yeah. The, <laughs> which the semi professional crop like a, body. Yeah. It's crazy how much has changed in yeah. like a decade. It's not a fair comparison anymore. And, um, well, I, okay, it's worth, it's worth talking about, um, but let's look at what was actually there on, on the 5D. So we had 12.8 million effective pixels. Yeah. 12 megapixels. I mean, that's that's fine. I, I, that's not something to make fun of. Not, not at all. I mean, up until quite recently, like Nikon's D700 wasn't that long ago, and that mm-hmm. was still a 12 megapixel camera. Um, did, were you there from the first 5D? Was that your yeah, first full-frame uh, camera? Exactly, Digital? it was. Yeah. What? What did I even have for a digital? I don't know if I owned a SL. I must have owned an SLR. I don't remember. I don't remember owning an SLR, a digital SLR before. So you don't recall like that idea. jump coming from a digital crop to a full frame for the first time? I remember. Time. I mean, I saw it. I had borrowed a Rebel. But okay. I, th- I think I didn't purchase one myself. I'd owned point and shoots and film SLRs. And then I bought the 5D. So I'd, right. I'd shot with it. And yeah, that jump was serious. I mean... You know, at the time, I was also on a 50 millimeter most of the time, which is a lot of, where a lot of people start off as a cropped sensor with a 50 yeah. mil, and that's a pretty tight lens. It's way too long yeah. for most types of photography. But it's somewhere that a lot of people start, so they're shooting basically with an effective 80 millimeter for yeah. the whole beginning of their career, which and, is it's strange. Yeah, yeah, and it certainly limits the type of photography you can do well, which I think is part of the revelation of going full frame for so mm-hmm. many people. Is all the, for the longest time there weren't lenses made well for crop sensor focal lengths. We were just adopting full frame lenses, especially at this point when the first 5D came out. You know, the 50 mil was there. There wasn't a cheap 35 yet. So suddenly no, that 35 2.0 didn't exist. It did, but it was still oh, okay. like I think a 300 dollars lens. Right. You know, and it was it was still quite a bit more expensive. Yeah. Um, but for the first time, people were using focal lengths the way they should be when they were shooting it, and that I think is a big part of it. Um, the other thing that stood out to me, cause I did go crop digital to full frame digital was the jump in ISO was crazy. You yeah. Know, capping it at 400 for me and suddenly 1600 ISO was <laughs> like, usable. Whole, 
Yeah, it was usable. Yeah. You know, it took a little bit of post, but yeah. it was a complete revelation for the way I shot. Yeah, well, because before that as well, I think this is when ISOs, I think, it felt like it's they started getting away from being analogous to what analog was. Right. They weren't the same. Like 400 was similarly grainy, I think. Right. And this is when it started to pull ahead, and it's like, oh, like, I could shoot at 800, yeah, and I'm not... And it, and it looks like 400. Yeah, This exactly, is amazing. Yeah. And of course, we've gone far beyond that now, but yeah. um, that was that was really impressive. It, it was a huge difference for me just to be able to do like, you know, leave the flash at home a lot more and shoot a little bit of available light, mm-hmm. uh, especially with a zoom lens, you know, to use a 24-70-2.8 and be able to shoot indoors for events was right. like a mind-blowing change in <laughs> yeah. photography. And it's something we completely take for granted yeah, nowadays. Totally. I, I also remember at the time being it being really interesting to me and being confused about their not being a built-in flash. And this is part of the 5D straddling the professional and consumer world this whole time. And that lack of on-camera flash, I think, has always been like a clear mark that even though it's pretty accessible and relatively affordable, it's yeah. not mainstream consumer. It's not a consumer tool. Yeah, because yeah, if I was, you know, regular Joe that's just a hobbyist, I would be frustrated right. by that. And I wouldn't want to go out and purchase an external flash. Right. And that has been one of those defining things that brings it a little more in the pro area, which is funny, the lack of a feature. Yeah, it it is (laughs) really. And I mean, eventually with Nikon, including it on some of their full frames, I was like, oh, this is so useful for remotely triggering flashes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But it was that strong differentiator. And I didn't miss it as much because at the time the high ISO was so mind blowing. Right. Yeah. All of a sudden you can shoot uh, anywhere with no light. What else do I see on here? Uh, Right. Three frames per second. Yeah, it was not a fast <laughs> camera, by, and that yeah. was a big thing. You'd have your crop sensor, like I think the 20D was a five frame per second. So that was like your ripping fast, cheap sports body. And then your 5D was your low light, but somewhat sluggish. This is before they really tried to make the 5D series do everything, I yeah. think. This was a portrait landscape, maybe events camera. Yeah, I mean, if, if more like um, the, the 20D, the cropped sensors were... Uh, yeah, you're like quick shooting, um, and you, everything sort of moved from in, in the olden days, 35 millimeter was like journalism and not as high quality, but if you needed the quality, you would go uh, medium format. Yeah. Um, now we're in a place where the 35 meets most quality needs for mm-hmm. everything. I mean, even for large scale advertising, like there are way less uses that you need to move to medium format for. Yeah. I mean, it's mostly a marketing thing yeah. at this point, as and opposed to a practical concern. Exactly. And it, that hadn't quite happened at the stage of the Mark one, yeah. the, the Mark one. So it was still treated a bit more as like, this is your large sensor camera. Yeah. And the other things are, are small sensor. And you, you know, another factor in like, this is the reason I shoot Canon. And I think the the five D Mark one has created a lead for Canon that they are still riding. It was, it was funny because there was such a back-to-back set of successes for Canon that really led to where we're at now, where Nikon is the second biggest, but there's still a big gap between the size of Canon shooters and yeah. Nikon shooters. And it was that they had the best AF towards the one series at the end of the film days right. and got their act together with full-frame digital first. Yeah. And it's crazy to think it's 10 years after that and we're still seeing the effects yeah. in terms of a user base. Yeah, and even though, and like I mentioned in the last episode, uh, it, it looks like right now Ken, uh, Canon is behind in most technical Yeah, I'd, if you were things, just comparing charts on review sites and not actually getting stuff yeah. in your hands, then yeah. yeah, they certainly seem to be. Yeah, like autofocus, uh, noise, 
dynamic range. Yeah, absolutely. They they ha- they had been lagging behind. Yeah. Um, and now and <laughs> let's not jump ahead yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, <clears throat> so I mean, every one of these kind of had that big jump because the the first one was that budget full frame. We saw that image quality become accessible. Um, the Mark II was enormous for me. Yeah, the, the Mark II was a jump forward. I mean, it's really fun at the beginning of new technology like this. It's the same as when iPhones were going from the iPhone 1 to 3GS to 4 to 4S. Yeah. And every moment was completely like it was whole a new huge features reevaluated the way you did everything yeah and um a lot of things a lot of digital mainstream stuff has kind of matured and we don't get those jumps anymore but it was really fun back then when every, at the time i remember we enormous. went to uh, nab right when the dslr video thing hit um and it was huge we, everybody was in the same playing field of trying to figure out how to utilize this new technology mm-hmm. we had a still sensor that doubled the resolution from the previous version that almost never happens mm-hmm. Um, everything kind of changed in that one. It's, it's a camera where they revamped almost the entire unit in a way that changed creatively what you're capable of doing. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, basic specs to give us some, Mm -hmm. some sense of where we are. The megapixels went up to 22, huge jump. How many frames per second are we at now? I think I want to say four. It wasn't Um, a big jump. Let's see how my memory is here. There's a lot more. They documented the specs more thoroughly. You can also see the evolution of DP review over time as they start adding more information in the reviews. <laughs> as people started nitpicking this stuff more and more to death, it was no longer just an overview. Yeah, exactly. Uh, buffer size, 13 raw frames. There we go. Yeah, so it was it was a, an improvement. Nudge. Yeah. The thing I always remember from that is the images being so impressed by them. They were better again in low light, but yeah. doubling the resolution, which rarely happens. Mm-hmm. Usually you take a noise penalty when you throw that much at it. The video features... And it had the same autofocus system from the Canon 20D. Yeah. And yeah. I'm sure, oh, yeah. We've had that how conversation. long it lasted, but it's amazing that they didn't update it for It's that crazy. Long. Well, and I mean, we'll get to it with the 3, but I had a Canon EOS 3 film camera. You mm-hmm. had an Elan 7, yeah. right? Yeah. And we had these sophisticated killer autofocus <laughs> systems on yeah, these film detection. bodies. And we're looking at our $3,500 5D Mark II and like, why can't it? Well, I guess we're only using the center point, yeah. and hopefully nobody walks towards us. Yeah. I, I think that was a big non-professional feature of it. That yeah. was something that if you if you were a working professional and you're like, I want to get on board with digital, but I can't have autofocus be terrible. Say sports. No, yeah. sports is a bad example because they needed the frame rate anyway. So they they were on a one no matter what. Right. Um, lifestyle people. Yeah. You know. Lifestyle photographers. Yeah. Uh, that autofocus was a huge problem. You have to remember, at this point, there was still 1Ds and 1DS cameras out. Mm. That's how Canon was segmenting things. Yeah. So you had your 5Ds for landscape, portrait, and now video people. Mm. And then you had your 1D4 for sports people. Uh, and then the 1DS, if you were doing high-resolution work but needed functional autofocus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's crazy how staggered everything That's was. That's the other one I spent time on at the time. I was using a 1DS Mark three, maybe. Yeah, that would be a three at that point, I yeah. think. Yeah. Because I was working at iStock Photo and that's what they had, and I was able to, to kind of borrow it. Another really memorable moment was uh, I was working at iStock Photo. They had recently launched their video collection. So we had a team of video editors around, and um, they hadn't paid much attention. Like they'd heard this camera shoots video. Right. That's interesting. And uh, Brad Ralph came in and he's like, look, I got this new camera. Let's turn on this 
new video yeah. feature. Let's dabble. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we recorded a few seconds and played it back and everybody gathered around this computer and we're just like, wait a minute. So what's happening? Yeah. What's happening here? Yeah. It, every, every aspect of it, not just the depth of field, but the noise yeah. and the color and everything looked infinitely better than anything, anything sort of like there. it was still a red one at that point was yeah. your closest competitor yeah. to that thing it really like it it looked better than the extremely expensive cameras that all those video shooters standing around the computer yeah were, were used to working with well and i got out of video basically before the 5d marked i mean i you know because i worked at the camera store was still mm-hmm. involved but i didn't shoot video right um because the bar for entry for something i found creatively interesting was so high um, the 5D Mark II actually brought me back to that. That's yeah. what an important camera was. Suddenly, I could get something that gave me some creative control at a budget that was manageable. It's a similar story for me. I had wanted to make movies originally. That's what I thought was the most interesting thing. But yeah, they looked like crap. They looked yeah. like student, worse than student films. I mean, <laughs> yeah. uh, my friend Dave Plitty and I were just doing stuff on a camcorder. Yeah. And, you know, that couldn't go anywhere. Like, you couldn't release that to film festivals. You couldn't do anything with no, what you made on camcorders. I was shooting with an HM 700 at that point, which was an old, I think like $11,000 camera or something yeah. like that. And the skin tones were okay, but the dynamic range was garbage. No depth yeah. of field control. It was a pain in the ass to work with. Um, and then, yeah, this cheap, you know, thing with lenses that I already had came out and, it really, I mean, you look at the entire hybrid of photo video, it's really due to this camera. Mm-hmm. I don't think that a $3,000 video camera, if it came out without the stills feature, would have had the impact and led to the photography crossover that we saw at that point. Yeah, no, that's true. So then um, so then Vincent Laferay comes out with... Right. What's that? What's that? Reverie. Perfume? Reverie? Yes. Uh, <laughs> and... Um, it wasn't the best short film, but we all saw it and we were all, we re, yeah. you know, it clicked. It's like, okay, wait, this yeah. is what you can do with this. Like, this And we look is, at it now yeah. that we're aware of all the limitations of those early DSLRs. And you can see, you mm-hmm. know, the wobble or the blacks are completely crushed and yeah. stuff like that. But at the time it was just like, the background is pretty. <laughs> <in this. laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And even looking back at other cameras, so it was, was it the same time? No, what year is this? When was... uh the uh, Star Wars prequels. When were they filmed? Oh, it was God. like 2001. Right. That, Cause they were half inch cameras, I think. At yeah. That point. And um, like, that's always a benchmark of like, okay, here's when digital, that was the first time digital video cameras were used in like really big Hollywood. Yeah. Cameras, before right? that it was like shorter, you know, European film or yeah. something like that. And so that's an interesting benchmark for me to look back on. So what year are we talking about for this? This was 2009. So right. This came out a while later. So it, looked better than star oh, by Wars. far yeah <laughs> i think it had more dynamic range than, like, yeah definitely better so. skin tones what was missing there was like there was no sound control is that there what was, was it? when it launched it was, it was 30 frames like true not 29.97 that syncs with right. audio it was 30 and then there's a big campaign to update it to 24 that i think like uh yeah pro lost a, a bunch of the uh, filmmakers yeah we're all campaigning for probably. Um, yeah, Phil, I mean, this is when Actually, I went to Philip Bloom workshop. Yeah. I even just want to talk about that. This led to the personalities of filmmaking teaching that yeah. we have now. Philip Bloom is a huge celebrity in the video making world. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to head off to Photokina here and go say hi to him, you know? Yeah. 
uh, still at this point. I mean, all the faces like EOS HD, Planet 5D, all of these video yeah, blogs, yeah, Cinema news 5D, shooters, yeah, yeah, all came out of this same and period. Still, and they're still those things. It's hilarious. You go on all of them, and they're like, Canon is the worst, says EOS HD. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's 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 pretty funny, but um, it's it's an entire culture that came out of. But it, it was amazing that yeah, it was this grassroots thing. Like mm-hmm. Canon didn't understand this, and you know, well, spoiler alert, they still don't. Yeah, um, they they couldn't bring together this community that built itself, and that people would teach each other things they'd figured out. Right. They learned how to shoot flat. They learned how to create um, magic lantern variant. Eventually, yeah, they were like, "If Canon's not going to give us this function, then yeah, well, we're going to unlock the true potential of this camera." Which is crazy that a bunch of hackers, hackers yeah, oh, basically amazing. saved Canon's <laughs> photo, like the the yeah. Mark II, because I worked at a store at this period, mm-hmm. and I a lot of people have said this is overstating. I don't think it is. Half the people who bought this camera were for video, mm-hmm. and a lot of videographers had two or three of them because yeah. you needed backups. They were a little bit flaky, especially if you threw Magic Lantern mm-hmm. in them. Like I would say, yeah, Canon, half of the success of this. And this is one of the most successful cameras ever made. I yeah. don't think there's any question. Tell me a bit about Let's that working that. At, a, at a store. Like how, how well was it selling compared to other? Well, bodies? at this point, the Nikon D700 came out, which is still one of my favorite images. They mm-hmm. came out at the same time. One was a 12 megapixel camera, which is what the, that's the Nikon one. Yeah. Canon had twice the megapixels and video. And there was always that thing in photography like, Professionals say we don't need more pixels, and the last thing we need is video. Um, but at that point, the market determined, no, we want cropping room, and the ability to shoot video is really important yeah. to us, because certainly it outsold the Nikon, and that's a big part of why Canon still has that lead to this point mm-hmm. on the DSLR side. I still see it to this day. People are buying, you know, it's still loops to go on the back of their Canon 5Ds <laughs> and stuff. And yeah. it's madness, yeah. but it's still going on. Well, uh, we'll get into that even more later. Okay, let's get up to the uh, Mark III. Oh, I didn't pull up the specs, but I still have it, so I, I should know it pretty well. Uh, the big <laughs> jump here was autofocus. All of a sudden, you have true professional autofocus. It was the first time I felt like there was a digital replacement for my EOS III. Yeah. That's what I distinctly yeah. remember when I looked at the specs. I was like, it's the same frame rate, and it's this, it looks like the same autofocus system on paper mm-hmm. as my old film camera. Yeah. And this is the camera for everybody. I, I think that a lot of the reaction to the announcement was sort of underwhelmed at the time mm-hmm. because... Because there was so much focus on megapixels. Right. Like they, they barely bumped them. Well, and you have to remember, what are they doing? <laughs> Nikon came out with the D800 at this exact same time, mm-hmm. too. Um, I remember we shot them both side by side because they came within like three days of each other. They well, and what was the big difference? I don't remember. Uh, it was a 22, I believe, or yeah, 23 yeah. um, on the Canon and 36 on the Nikon. 36, okay. So huge difference yeah. there. Um, so yeah, of course the Canon people felt shortchanged as well. You have to remember this powerful 5D Mark II video community was expecting a movie camera for the 5D Mark III. And you talk to most people. Yeah, that, was, and that was the other big disappointment. It's like yeah. it cleaned up a bit of aliasing maybe. Yeah. Um, it didn't have the aliasing issues. Rolling shutter was better controlled. A headphone jack. Yeah. That uh, was, that was big. It, that was huge. So um, it was some helpful tweaks. Like these, these it was an improvement. Did make it better, but it was not turning it it wasn't committing to video like everybody hoped it it was still held back and we found out why three months after that when the c300 came out their cinema camera but yeah i think those two things because canon with the mark ii said like we figured out what everybody wants they want big files and good video and then the mark ii was kind of like 
Yeah, we're not sure you really want yeah. big files. No, you know what? The whole time I've had the Mark III, I've been very happy. I've never wished I had bigger files. Right. There's never been a time that I wished there were more megapixels there. Yeah, I feel um, like it is pretty close to the sweet spot. Yeah. That, like, mid-20. And we still see that, like, the best-selling Nikon full-frame is the 750 that I know Cameron just got and was talking about in the yeah. last episode. 24-megapixel camera. It's the sweet spot. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I, I actually, I would take... a couple more for occasional cropping mm-hmm. i'd yeah i'd say like 24 25 yeah um i mean 30 is is pretty good but well i, I it's so hard not to jump ahead yeah <laughs> uh what else about the mark three i mean the mark three is what i've shot the most frames on of right. anything that i've owned it lasted the longest right mm-hmm. like we went the much longer gap without an update uh over four years, right? Yeah, just over, uh, which mm-hmm. is huge. And you have to remember, too, because this camera was now usable for doing faster action, you know, you could use it as a lifestyle camera. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't all static post-portraits. I'm sure it changed the way you shot. Yeah. There was also a lot more frames out there. So certainly, you know, people, I they've had their shutters replaced more, but people were really using these cameras. It wasn't a specialized tool anymore. Yeah. It was the first time I didn't feel like I needed to get it replaced. This could keep lasting me. I'm, I don't feel pressure to get rid of this camera. It's kind of peak. Like with, with iPhones, I started feeling like that around the 5S. Right. It's like, this is actually kind of good enough, and I only want the new one because I want the new one. But, right. you know, the, the Mark III is, um, is going to be a good enough camera for a little bit longer still. It's oh, for a, a long yeah, yeah, I could grab one right now, and I know I'm gonna, it's going to be able to throw most of what I need to shoot. Mm-hmm. And remember, at the same time, the 1DX was out there. Which before, remember, we had 1D4s, we had 1DS series. Um, the 1DX did not make that much of a dent because yeah. the 5D3 was such a capable camera. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's uh, I'm sure Canon has always felt mixed about that, about having hijacked some of the best features from their pro camera. But I'm I guarantee they so sold so they many more from the <laughs> yeah. 5D to make up that difference. Yeah, and it's interesting because the whole rest of the industry. This is the time when so much change happened. This is when Nikon and Canon stopped being the only two brands. This is when everyone else got their act together because before that you just, I I would laugh at, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't laugh, but yeah, if people owned a Sony. Yeah. Oh, I I remember. I wouldn't really take them seriously. It's like, you you must not have done your research. Right. Like that must be. Or you had old Minolta lenses. That's the (laughs) only reason you'd possibly be dragging that thing around. Or or any of them or an Olympus or a Fuji or whatever anybody else is making. Mirrorless was on its second and third versions at this point. So we were seeing really cool, interesting features. You have to remember GH2 came out around this time, the Panasonic. And that was an excellent photo slash video hybrid. And that's almost what everybody was expecting from the Canon 5D3. Um, So you had a camera that satisfied almost all of photographers' needs, but it underwhelmed their expectations, Mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of the interesting thing about that. Well, another crazy things are that, you know, both Sony, Sony went through a bunch of crap and they came out with the a seven series. Yeah. Um, first by like adding each, they added three cameras in this time. Then they updated all three cameras. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and feature wise were way, way beyond Canon mm-hmm. before Canon even showed a hint of moving forward. I mean, there's, yeah. there, Sony's, you know, ready to do another line of them soon. Yeah. I, I think uh, we're going to see them. Yeah. Probably this year, a whole revamp yeah. of the entire line. But I remember talking to Canon in this period. And I think this is also where some of the disconnect comes from is, saying like this is what people want like this is exciting this is compelling like i mean i've talked about it here on this show um 
I love eye detect autofocus. I think it's one of the best things mm -hmm. to happen to portrait photography. And with as a guy with a kid, yeah. I love it. Yeah, I, it really changes smart. the way I shoot. Um, and like, when are we going to see something like that? And they're just like, well, we've talked to, talk, uh, spoken to our professionals, and this is not something they're interested in at this time. Mm -hmm. That was their response to right. everything. Peaking, not interested. That, Professional people. That seems want. like a lie. <laughs> exactly. When we know it is. Yeah. Um, but the, this is when they started to get that um, reputation for arrogance a little bit, mm -hmm. too, I think, was the um, 5D3. But at the same time, I am somewhat grateful for the stability. Yeah. For, for not feeling like I'm missing out by not upgrading every year. Mm -hmm. Like I like that. I felt comfortable with that camera for four years. And like I say, I could probably go on for a few more and still get my job done and trust the, the body. Yeah. You know? If, if it were strictly in terms of photography, I think I, I like I said, I could yeah. still take one out speaking in terms of, photography. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just in terms of specs and a feedback loop with their customers, it felt like there was some disconnect for the first time. Where with the Mark II, you've got to remember, nobody said, I want a 21 megapixel camera mm -hmm. with video in it. Canon was ahead of the curve, giving people what they didn't know they wanted. Yeah. This was the first time people were like, we really want this. And Canon was saying, <laughs> nah, I don't think you do. Yeah. Even, and, well, okay, we're starting to get to the Mark IV, but they even yeah. took that approach a bit of throwing in some very strange features that nobody was talking about, really. No, and, uh, not like, we want this. Yeah. Um, they're like, let's throw some R&D at that thing. <laughs> So uh, most of what I want to talk to you about with the Mark IV is we'll, we'll focus a bit more on video. Perfect. And I'll, uh, I'll, I'll talk to Cameron a bit more about stills. But the, the biggest take home for me is um, what we've thought for a while, what we've suspected since the Mark III, Canon is splitting their lineup between video cameras and stills cameras. Yeah. And that is a decision. It's not an accident. No. It's, um, it's not that they don't have the R&D or yeah. something like that. It's... And what's funny is the backlash with this Mark IV. When Canon has spent four years, like when the Mark III came out, they said, if you're interested in cinema features, we strongly recommend our cinema line. And we've spent four years, every time I've talked to Canon, they've said the same thing. Like, these are photo cameras with some video capability. These are not designed to be used as professional video cameras. Uh, that They've been saying that forever. Right. The Mark IV comes out, and everybody's like, where are those professional video features we wanted? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there was a huge, and I've tweeted about it before, like the wail that you heard the moment the Mark IV specs were announced from videographers and I wasn't one of those people shocked or surprised by yeah. it. Yeah. I'm not surprised at all. I am. I, there are a few features that I'm just disappointed right. because they are so certainly not technical requirements. They mm -hmm. are things that they decided to leave out that magic lantern is going to unlock. Yeah. I don't have a lot of respect for that. Things like, you know, eye tracking, that's something that might've brought the cost of the camera up. Right. They would have had to probably drop some other feature. <clears throat> you know, it's getting, there are some that's things true. that are trade-offs. Well, and that's, that's a hardware trade-off as well. Exactly. Right. Yeah. But um, adding a log color profile. No, they have is, it. That is fair. Like that is completely reasonable to expect from them. Yes. Um, adding peaking. I don't know. That Magic Lantern did it trivial. on the Mark II. Yeah. yeah. We like, know the processor can handle yeah. it. Um, uh, so many things like that. And, and this is, I'm recording an episode of camera store TV talking about it. I feel like we're hitting a wall where this artificial software segmentation is mm -hmm. really taking off in the photo world. Because there's not that many new exciting places to go. We just right. tested a Pentax the other day. 
with a bunch of the same features as its big brother, but they just, in software, like unchecked some buttons on it. Yeah. So there was still some reason to go to the higher-end camera, even though they're both completely capable of it. Mm. That's what I feel like with this Canon camera a lot. And they will say, we couldn't use a compressed codec with our 4K because it's too hard on the yeah. processor. Well, and so that's the other one. Is, do you think that's true? I, mean, I don't think that's true at yeah. all. I don't uh, understand that one. No. Um, I mean, so many... I mean, yes, there's some mirrorless cameras that overheat, but they're small little bodies with small little batteries and a lot packed in. This is a big, chunky SLR body. Yeah. And even then, give me the option. Give me like something that'll overheat after 10 minutes, but is nice and small. Or these absurd... Yeah. Like I made the comparison in our review that... Because photographers don't really, I think, a lot of the time understand compression and stuff. This is like if you bought a new digital SLR and all it can shoot is TIFFs. Yeah. No yeah, raw files. Totally. That's what this thing is like. Yeah. Um, like, I went... I have Did you tweet that already? Because that it's important to get the word out about that. I think I'm well, going to my video. I just spoil it. Hopefully, the video will be out. Okay, um, okay. But I have to wade through 500 gigabytes Wow. Of of shooting. This, is, this isn't <laughs> edited yet. This is my raw stuff. And what's a normal episode? Like I have a, uh, a 256 gig SSD in my laptop yeah. and I generally use like a hundred gigs yeah. to cut an entire episode. <laughs> so this is five times the size of that. And I shot frugal. Like usually I love when we do something, I like to let the camera roll and capture these little candid moments with Chris when he's frustrated or whatever. This time I'm like, okay, you have 10 seconds. Treating it like Say film. this. The, exactly. It was like shooting motion picture film. And it's and we're, we swapped. I went through four 64-gig cards before the first dump. Yeah. It for context, changed. yeah. So 64 gigs is 20 minutes for uh, court time? At 30 frames per second, it's 15 minutes. Yeah. This is a 30-frame episode. It's madness. Yeah. And they've also said that it's so you can extract better still frames from it if you want to pull those out. Who cares? <laughs> I can do that in my editing software. And yeah. Panasonic does it with compressed codecs. Yeah. Uh, they shoot H.264. I can pull beautiful. I've printed beautiful frames that I've pulled out of those mm. things. Um, this really does feel like just a technical handicapping yeah. to me. And then, uh, of course, the, the crop factor as well. Yeah. Uh, Crops into more than Super 35. Yeah. And can you explain how that works? So it's... It's 1.7 something. It's a, yeah, it's a 1.7 crop factor. And what it does is it uses the center nine megapixels of its chip. Now, I mean, I, <laughs> it's close to Super 35. That doesn't yeah. aggravate me too much. But Canon has a full line of EFS lenses that would work beautifully on this mm -hmm. that won't mount on mm -hmm. the goddamn camera. So uh, they physically won't mount. So you have to use third-party lenses. Um, so we've been using Sigmas, Takinas, and Tamrons on this thing. I think that I think Canon did not want this to be a 4K camera. I think I'm sure there are people in there that were saying like, "Let's just not do it." Like, yeah. we're, we don't we don't want to. We're not committed to it. And they just kind of had to force the minimum viable 4K on there. It feels and, like a marketer saying, "We have to have this on the box." Yeah, and I kind of wish they hadn't. No, just to not confuse. Non-video people, savvy people, yeah. people that don't regularly shoot video aren't aware of those size restrictions or the lack of right. features. Well, like, just take it away because it's going to be nothing but pain. Well, let's suppose I'm someone who doesn't have a background in video and hasn't been reading all the angry video blogs about this. I'm shooting some photos. I really like my framing. I kick it into video mode. Of course, I default to 4K because that's what everything should be. Mm -hmm. And your frame is zoomed in like you just put a 1.7 teleconverter on it you're going to be like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> and this is also, yeah. they say it's for photojournalists. The 
the capture of video because they have yeah. to be able to do both simultaneously. You have to change lenses every time you switch to video mode, yeah. at which point, why wouldn't I just pull a camcorder or another mirrorless camera out of my bag? Well, and you can tell how many people are unaware of this. If you just, you know, Google 5d Mark IV video uh, tests or reviews yeah. or whatever. And, and I see all these people shooting test video with it and they're like, yeah, it looks really sharp. They're like saying positive things about it. They're like, it yeah. looks, the video looks really crisp. It is very and crisp. Yes. And like, yeah, it, of course it is. But every other camera is too. Like yeah. that's the minimum that's thing the you low expect. bar. Yeah. Yeah. Of course it's sharp. Yeah. Nobody's worried about GoPros sharp. Are sharp. Yeah. Um, and it, I've said for the longest time, the last thing we need in video right now is resolution. Yeah. Like the resolution war has gotten more stupid than mm -hmm. it is in the photo world right now with more megapixels. I, I haven't lately, but there are still a lot of jobs I shoot that I could easily deliver at 720. Totally. And nobody would mind. I would have made everybody happy. I, I was talking to some broadcasters about putting the camera store TV on network and they're like, what, what are you shooting? And like, does it meet 720p requirements? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And like we output in 4k, like that's how far ahead the you know, the enthusiast mindset is from where practically we're actually at in yeah. professional video. And for, if I haven't said this on the show before, and especially if anybody's not aware, I mean, 4k is about capturing extra information so that you have more to work with in post. That's the yeah. true value of 4k. It's yeah. not playing it back and having the sharpest possible image. No. Like that's nice. No, sometimes like the movie I shot last summer is going to play at Calgary international next week. Mm -hmm. And it's going to play in a beautiful two K projection, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which is 2.4 megapixels. Mm -hmm. And it's going to look beautiful on that big screen there. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's not that we need that resolution to make stuff look good because everything's moving in video. Yeah. If you shoot all your stills at a 48th of a second, uh, then you're not really going to care about extra megapixels because yeah, no, most of your frames will be blurry anyway. 4K is most interesting, similar to the way HD was for sports yep. and news. You know, things that are just like, they're all yeah. about seeing detail. Like, if I'm doing VFX, it's great because you have more information to draw right, from. Yeah. But for the stuff that it is being used for, I mean, yeah, 4K is great. Like I shoot a lot in 4K. Yeah. But it's not the end-all be-all. I'll take a better color space. Yeah. Um, and not to totally go off track, mm -hmm. but something like Dual Pixel AF makes a, the new autofocus system makes a way bigger difference yeah. to video shooting than 4K does. I've been talking to a lot of people that shoot for online with Stocksy lately, and uh, one thing I keep saying is I would rather see the latitude of a 1080 only camera. Yeah. Like a black magic pocket cam totally. will look much better than a five D Mark four because people judge these videos basically by thumbnails. Mm -hmm. Half of them are going to watch it on their phone. Yeah. You know, the resolution is so not important, but the quality of an SLR is going to jump out at you that there is no dynamic range. Right. The fall off into the highlights is not smooth. Mm -hmm. it, it does not look very good. Yeah, It looks like somebody took a broadcast, television camera and yeah. shot cinematic depth of field footage with it. And there's a great proof of concept out there. One of my favorite cameras is Sony's FS5. And you can shoot to a memory card either 10-bit 1080 footage or 8-bit compressed 4K footage. And unless I need to deliver in 4K or it's a review of a 4K camera for Camera Store TV, always 10-bit 1080. Yeah. I would much rather have that better color information. I'm so confused about the world not understanding this it's baffling still like, it, it just seems so obvious if you just look at these things side by side of course dynamic range is more important yeah and we just saw the gh5 announced yeah. um and i mean not to jump ahead to photokina stuff but it is a really interesting camera 
first thing I see, like the number one thing on DP review yeah. is why is this not a 6K or 8K camera? Oh, and insane. That make, it's it makes lunacy. no sense. But like all the other numbers were beautiful. Like 4K, 60P, 10-bit, Almost perfect camera to my mind. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so that kind of thing is is really what I think um, Canon's just selling for the spec on the yeah. 4K. But the other stuff, um, in terms of usability and image quality um, on the 5D4, have you shot any 1080 with it yet? Uh, yeah, yeah, just random tests, yeah. just messing around. And it's a huge jump over the Mark III. The Mark III was a notoriously soft camera. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, the image looked okay, but there was next to no detail in it. I just shoot someone with a beard with the two cameras. The difference is night and day. The Mark III put everything into mush. Mm-hmm. The Mark IV is actually very, very sharp, crisp, good-looking video. No moiré, no aliasing, none of those problem issues. Um, it has the best autofocus system in video I've ever seen. Um, if they had left the 4K off this box... People will be like, this is a dramatic update yeah. from the Mark III. It's, marketing is the only confusion. Like People would yeah. be confused about why they can't market a 4K camera. But yeah, just in terms of quality and also usability. I mean, especially because, yeah. like you say, with the autofocus. The touchscreen and autofocus together. Mm-hmm. And, and there's still, I gave myself a test when I shot this. I shot the entire episode that'll be online soon in 4K with dual pixel autofocus and never clicked the switch over to manual focus. Mm. And it terrifies me to do that. Just poking at the back of the screen. And And, and it was pretty good. There's certainly times where you'll see it does that terrible thing where it flutters between the ears and the nose um, when you're focused. But generally, especially when your subject's moving, because that's what it's designed for, it's almost bulletproof. Like (laughs) It's insanely good. Yeah. And that's the big technical innovation that nobody seems to be talking about because it was on the ADD and the 1DX2. Well, and what this camera is great for is people doing things more like YouTube content, more like um, just storytelling. That's not about the cinematography. It's not about the image being as beautiful as possible. It's just just telling a story in the image. You know, you just try to make it as good as you can. But, uh, you know, yeah, if you're a YouTube shooter... Yeah, well, and I, I still like say vlogger, vlogger kind of stuff. Yeah. The ADD is a great option. Yeah. This is, I mean, it's still not great for vlogs because you'll have to somehow look at the camera and yeah. try and poke the back screen. It's not a better option. Yeah. It's just that if you also want it for the stills, it will yeah. now do a very good job. Totally. And so, I think we're going to see a ton of events, people. I mean, we've already right. seen it with ADDs. 1DX was out of everybody's price bracket. Um, but now with uh, 5D4 out there, we're going to see a lot of budget event shooters mm-hmm. walking around with 5D4s, I bet. This is also great for people that are just passionate hobbyists. Yeah. Now their home videos are going to get way easier. Totally. That's what it's for. Yeah. Uh, so, I don't know, in, in all the ways that Canon wants this to be a video camera, it succeeds totally. a lot. And they've said this is for the casual user yeah. who wants to capture the odd video clip, and it's great for that. It's that the 4K is so flawed, and if you're a professional who knows what you want from your camera, it still doesn't have that. We still don't have zebras or peaking or waveforms or any of the stuff that makes my life easier. Um, when that's gone, I always feel like I'm shooting somewhat blind right you know if i was a photographer it's like shooting film again you know i'm not confident that i'm getting everything that i want until you go back and check later but if you don't care about that stuff or know how to use it properly then yeah this camera is going to do better than a professional camera on a lot of hands have you played with the hdr features much yet i haven't because i was shooting mostly in 4k for that uh review and when i was testing it i saw it disabled in 4k and didn't Tested in 1080. I well, totally missed that. It is it is limited in a lot of ways. It's and um, 
when I saw it ahead of time, I didn't think very hard about it because it looks like a novelty feature. Basically, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't seem like something people are really going to use. Right. It only works in 1080 at 30 frames per second or 50. Weird. Uh, sorry, 30 or 25 because it's shooting at 60 or 50. Oh, I got it. And okay. That, and yeah. it is, yeah, so it's basically shooting two things at once at different shutter speeds and combining them live. Right. And therefore, you also can only record into one of the more compressed formats. I forget which one, but... um, Probably the IPB format. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, but it adds so much latitude. Like, all of a right. sudden, it looks it looks as good as log. Um, right. I don't... I haven't done the test yet. I, I casually did it. I don't know the real results. I didn't. I didn't look at the final image quality, but does look like it's adding as much dynamic range as you get from log files at least. And did you notice any weird motion stuff? Like if a yes. car drives by in the highlights or something like that? Uh, so I didn't test it enough to know exactly how it behaves or how bad it gets. Uh, in in regular people just sitting and talking and moving around, uh, I, the artifacting wasn't very right. noticeable. I wasn't even sure if I was seeing it or just imagining it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty sure there will be something if there's a lot of motion. There will be problems. Right. If you're doing the classic, someone in front of a window and try to recover that back. Yeah, yeah, you might notice some stuff. But but, uh, but the like I was talking about before, the thumbnail perspective of what this image yeah. looks like small is going to be way way better. If right. you're shooting basic, you know, talking head stuff, and you have any sort of dynamic lighting, if you're outdoors or anything, yeah. Um, what what I probably will end up doing if I ever shoot video with this is I'm going to shoot it at, at uh, 50 frames per second or sorry. Well at 25 yeah. basically and use it like, like it's 24. <laughs> right. Uh, Cause it'll look, that's an easy interpolation to do. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I'm curious how that's going to compare when you start to grade stuff uh, yeah. in terms of color and things like that. Well, and I've also, seen some weirdness on some cameras. It's doing interesting that. to see it. I mean, what I saw has looked really good so far. Cool. Um, so well, and a lot of the time the it's going to be your be, sky, which yeah. isn't really doesn't matter what your motion looks like in that. So it makes a lot of sense in those situations. Well, where I see the issue is the the stitching around the edge, basically. Right. That's where I see the kind of weirdness. Hmm. Um, so I, I shouldn't go too deep into it yet because we'll both have to test this. Yeah, we got to explore it. But uh, but it's also interesting because like what you're used to is that to get the dynamic range out of many cameras, <clears throat> you need to shoot log. So you're shooting a really flat file that looks like crap, but here yeah. you're shooting something that has contrast, yeah, has all but the a little bit more color. highlight latitude and the highlights. Yeah. That's an interesting way to go about it. And yeah. it's part of why I love the look that you get from the best image the black magic cameras and the, uh, Aries yeah. is they have a very similar look. The blacks aren't too muddy, then you've got beautiful highlight roll off. So for things that don't require a ton of quality, mm-hmm. um, like for just casual personal projects, uh, I'm definitely going to experiment with it and, and shooting outside. I am going to look forward it, to hearing what you get out of that. Yeah, because sure. I, I could see it looking like a black magic. You know, so cool. Um, but that is not typical use. I usually like to shoot at 24. Um, right. It's still not going to be. That doesn't change what I was saying earlier. It's well, just an interesting area of potential. Well, and a big part of the beauty of log is the dynamic range is great, but it's also and you've talked about this on your show having access to LUTs and things like that. Right. I don't think we're going to see LUTs <laughs> for the HDR mode on yeah, this camera because it's never going to be consistent. Well, I'm going to experiment with that. I'm going to get back to you when I have some more real answers. I will look forward to that. Also, shooting with my with this in one hand and the A7R2 in the other. I've really started to see the future of what cameras are going to be. (laughs) Uh, And I I was thinking about doing just like a 10 minute YouTube video about this, about my dream video camera. 
because it, it's just laid out in front of me now that these two cameras are side by side. An EVF, an electronic viewfinder, is part of it. Mirrors have been great historically, but that isn't what makes this camera amazing. Yeah. And the quality of those viewfinders, of electronic viewfinders, is getting good enough. I never mind it, no. ever, in my A7R2. No, I've, we've been past that for a few years now, yeah. I think. And I, I think it can it can get better, of course. Every time but, it makes a jump, like the there's the um, Leica SL with its 4 million dot viewfinder. Mm-hmm. Best viewfinder I've ever looked through. Yeah. Attached to a terrible brick of a camera. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I mean, they keep getting better, but I never feel like I'm missing something at this point going to an A7R2 or even my little A6300. I don't feel like I'm missing that. So I I know they're not going to change that in a 5D body. This will always be a conservative camera, I think. Yeah. But if somebody applies the professional features of a 5D Mark IV into some of the key new features of a A7R or A-series... Um, like we're, that is, that is going to be the killer camera. Yeah. Okay. So here, here's what they are. T- uh, the things from the Mark four is also touchscreen. Yeah. That is as soon as I had it within a day, I started trying to touch the screen of the Sony. Yeah. I, I always do it as well. And I was not excited for this feature. <laughs> I didn't even, yeah. I, I, nobody ever seems to be until no. you, yeah. Once you get used to it. Um, and Sony drives me crazy cause they have this little 5,100 camera. Nobody knows about with a great touch screen and mm. the same lens mount as all the popular ones. Yeah. I don't even it's know out there. About. I don't know why they're <laughs> not putting it on everything. Um, other really important things are the, yeah, the autofocus nipple, the nipple on the back that, that you tweak to move things around. Uh, that construction quality, that feeling that great. needs to be there yeah. to like, I need to really be able to quickly move my autofocus. And on the Sony, I don't even remember how you do it with the preset controls. I had to yeah. modify my, I had to do custom controls so that I press the set button yeah. and, and then, then up and down and left and right. Yeah. And even and that is very finicky and it, it is not, it is a problem. It is a re- one of the reasons that the Sony can't. Well, really and it's, it's nice because Fuji just brought out their X-T2, X-Pro2 cameras, which are great little mirrorless cameras. And they've woken up to this as well. They have this great feeling focus point selector switch. And once mm-hmm. we start to see those on options besides full-size professional DSLRs, I think we're going to start to see them everywhere very quickly. Well, and I think part of the thing is that you could scale a full-size professional DSLR down quite a bit if you wanted to. I mean, yep. chopping the mirror out. <laughs> would obviously right there you've have, uh, shaved a ton of weight out of it but also bringing the battery size over from the 5d i mean i know sony sees it as an advantage that those cameras are so small but again as a professional that's a problem like, yeah it, it shouldn't be so stick a big battery in it yeah well and now i just power mine with the little usb plug on the side oh of it, yeah, yeah which is clunky but when you have a video rig though yeah, when I have a video rig. Yeah, when I'm out with stills, stills, I'm not yeah, yeah hanging so. that off the side. Stills, I don't mind switching as much. But in video, it's a killer, because usually I'm rigging the camera up a little bit as well. Yeah. So I was going to say recording video without an EVF, Yeah. nightmare. It's, it's I mean, awful, yeah. Like, you can't, if you're in bright light, you can't get that isolated look of looking through it. You can't get that, like, three-point stabilization of when you hold the camera up to your eye. Yeah, it's um, always on a rig or a monopod when I'm mm-hmm. working with uh, the DSLRs. Or I even brought out that stupid loop for a little bit when I yeah. was testing. Which but yeah, it, it, so which all of this forces you to keep the camera further from your face. Yeah, which is the worst possible. I'm, much less stable, yeah. much, much heavier. Um, I mean, you can, yeah, uh, everything. We, we could go on and on yeah. about it. Like, uh, the DSLR design has never been made for shooting video. No, and, yeah. And Samsung made a killer camera, the NX1. Um, that line is gone now, um, discontinued. But it would, looked like a 
small Canon DSLR. And Canon's doing the same thing now with their EOS M5 they just launched. I think people are waking up to the fact it's ergonomically a great design, but it can be smaller and lighter. Your eye can be in the same place, and it works insanely well. Mm -hmm. And I think Sony's going to wake up. And uh, Panasonic's been doing the GH bodies forever, which look like small DSLRs. That's the future, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, and also tilt screen um i'm i'm glad it's not i'm not glad i don't mind that it's not on the 5d because it's a stills camera uh, right i so, mean ask cameron how he feels about his on a 750 though yeah. i bet he loves it i do really like it but i don't resent it not being here like i also like feeling the sort of crust of the body that comes with no flapping parts right um i mean to it, it but, but okay but for the future video specialty camera anyway it yeah. i am behind it yeah uh i do i often enough now tilt that screen out and look down well with um it's funny because i was never a big tilt screen guy for stills until i had a toddler and now i'm obsessed with right. it with my 63 because i never want to shoot down like yeah, looking yeah, at to them. get that perspective exactly it just opens up so or when i'm shooting landscapes you know if i'm dragging a tripod around it's amazing how many shots i shoot above my waist mm-hmm. because it's going to be more comfortable for me to see but you know what needs to be fixed about the evf setup currently on sony's is the switching between, oh it's terrible yeah it's it is really really bad like it constantly um i, I I've just programmed it to a button at this point. I'm wasting one okay, of my wait, custom so how buttons. Do you, how do you do the button? Th- okay, tell me about this after. Because I, I, okay. I wanted that switch to do it. Right. No, it doesn't. Yeah. So that, that's to, the most obvious thing. I know. Ever, there's a switch, yeah. and I don't use it for anything right now. Why doesn't that switch between? You're wasting one of your very valuable custom buttons yeah. to do it. Yeah. Um, um, but I did want to point out, just on the tilt screen thing quickly, Canon is now the only company with a full-frame sensor that doesn't offer a tilt screen. Oh. Nikon's got it on the 750. Pentax has their K1, which has this like bomb-proof... Like We were swinging the camera around by its flip screen. Wow. They're rugged now. Hmm. Um, and even looking at the medium format stuff, we're starting to see the Pentax 645Z has a tilt screen. I love right. it. I yeah. use it all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really liked it in that. Yeah. It, as soon as you use it, when you go back to something, you miss it immediately. Yeah. And that was a big oversight for me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that okay. That's fair. You, you talked me into it. <laughs> yes. uh, One little victory. What else is uh, What else is really new? We've got this. There's a new button below the nipple. Yeah, uh, which is it's a great little quick access to some of your autofocus modes. Is how but I found myself already using is it. that button. I mean, yeah. there is a dedicated button to that now like, to cycle what, through those. Yeah, yeah. Do these two buttons do anything different on yours? Uh, that, and I'm looking at the MFN manual. Yeah, because you have function. the focus point selector and then AFSC, and but with this you can dial in your. Um, you can treat it like the MFN button and also have it use the focus yeah, so grid you that you want. Make to it use. do the exact same thing as another as the, existing well, button. Well, you know, you got two custom functions. So now you got two nice. buttons that do the same. Well, if you reprogram them, I mean, it, the thing is, the button looks really nice, but I, I just couldn't find a use. For, I have, I so far haven't found a use that was important to me. Um, and I also, I still feel like there are some buttons that are underutilized. The way that the picture profile button works. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like something that could be remappable, especially if you're yeah. only shooting stills. You're going to shoot raw, and that doesn't matter anyways. Yeah, and they never really developed their whole HDR uh, thing System. for stills. No. So I, that goes never used. And when I do multiple exposures, I don't do it in camera so one thing that baffles me is they kept the magnify button on the same side that you use to manually focus your lens um it's on 
Yeah. It's oh, okay. Well, I reprogram mine to set immediately. Exactly. Everybody does the yeah. same thing. It makes so no sense. Over. So that's another <laughs> wasted button there. Um, but yeah, that's something that's easy, easy enough to remap. It just seems like an odd oversight. Yeah. In the um, uh, um, focus... Uh, depth of field depth preview. Depth of field preview. Who uses that? I almost never use I it. I couldn't anymore. think of anything to remap it to, so I think I might have deactivated it. But, uh. Yeah, that's it makes fine. a ton of sense on the, again, the mirrorless cameras where you can look at a display that's the same brightness. Mm-hmm. When your image goes dark every time you stop down, even marginally, like right. if you stop down from 2.8 to 4, you just cut the amount of light going through in half. It's really hard to see what's actually yeah. in focus. Yeah, exactly. With a mirror, it's very difficult to use unless it's a bright, bright landscape shot. And then I'm stopped down anyways, generally. Yeah, I've never really understood it. Okay, well, we're, we're nearing an hour on this, so yeah, um, um, i got to leave something for, for Cameron, too. <laughs> It's a shame too because I do like the the still side. I feel like I've just been bitching because it's a disappointing camera for video. Yeah, but we really re- led, led with all the disappointments, all the, all the negatives. But it's a great stills camera. Yeah, um, this is. Um, I I mean, you know, save it for I camera. Negative stuff, but but like I bought this camera yeah. because it yeah. is wonderful. It's, it's a huge upgrade. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. Watch my camera store TV episode and then sure, you'll know sure. what well, I, give, give me the just, give me the one minute thing like what's okay the one minute basically Canon caught up with this camera um, you know you can look at all the numbers and everything like that and sure it's not the best for dynamic range resolution or anything, but it's competitive in every category mm-hmm. and the focus is the same as the one DX2 which was the best DSLR autofocus system I've ever used um, so this is again a camera that can do anything that you throw at it the thing that's weird to me is it's slightly worse than all of its competitors for dramatically more money. That's the unfortunate thing about it. But um, the high ISO performance is great. The dynamic range is hugely improved. The amount you can dig out of the shadows and actually have some detail is crazy. Uh, I mentioned the focus is wonderful. It's a very well-rounded stills camera. But there's ju- it just seems like it doesn't excel in any one category besides the dual pixel autofocus and the slr autofocus mm-hmm. if you're not shooting anything that requires and to tell the difference between this and the mark three you need pretty fast action or extremely shallow depth of field in your shots if you don't have one of those two things you won't see it that often both of those are a concern of mine so exactly so this is a stallman camera yeah. which is <laughs> yeah. i think yeah you texted me like the moment it was announced and it is a perfect <laughs> fit i did not try to talk you out yeah, of this yeah, at all I, I did not need to be and i, I mean i've been ready for this for a year or two. I, I mean, I said that I've been happy with the 5D Mark III for four years, but I also felt like I was excited for an upgrade yeah. at least a year ago. It, it and d- um, I'm glad that it's here. It, it does definitely, especially when you have the A7R uh, too as well, which is not as ergonomically great and functionally not nearly as great a camera to work with. But once you're used to having that shadow detail there, it changes the way you shoot. Yeah. And I do really miss it. So it's great to see a competitive Canon finally. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, to sum up the video section, we, I think we live in a world for a while where you buy a video camera and you buy a stills camera. If you're a Canon person or I'm still in the state of mind, would just buy a mirrorless, get a GH five or an yeah, a seven R two. But it couldn't do, prof- if you do professional of, both. Right, that's the issue. You can do consumer both for sure. I mean, the A sixty three hundred. Oh, it's beautiful. That looks yeah. beautiful for both. That's what that's the camera I'm kind of just recommending to everybody right now. Right. Um, but yeah, I I can't do professional photography with the A seven R two. Yeah, yeah, so. it, it's still not there, which is why we hope we see that Sony flagship that didn't get announced today. <laughs> yeah. 
But it's a very well-rounded camera, and it's very interesting, and I'm glad I got a chance to talk about it a little more in depth than our yeah. short video. I'm glad you were here. Yeah, always good to be here. Congratulations on the baby, Cameron. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll pass it along, or this will pass no, it along. It'll, yeah, no, surprise him when he listens to it. <laughs> he probably doesn't listen to these after they get so posted. where are people going to find this video of yours? Uh, at the Camera Store TV, youtube.com slash the Camera Store TV. And where do people follow you? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter, TCSTVJordan. Um, we're also on Facebook, just as... Facebook, the camera store TV, uh, we're Instagram too, uh, the camera store TV. And I think we have a Snapchat that I'm not paying attention to <laughs> as well. So follow them everywhere except Snapchat. Hi, and welcome to hour two of the 5d Mark four review on cameras or whatever. Uh, I'm still Tyler Stallman. <laughs> and now I've got Cameron Whitman. <laughs> and reintroducing. Yeah, hey, welcome, Cameron. Thanks. Sorry we couldn't all do this together because of timing, but what what I said to Jordan was this is this is my dream episode of the of the show because this is the camera I've loved for so many years and something I have so much to talk about extended out. So as a Nikon shooter, I, I hope you can feign some interest in yeah, I'll the try. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but one thing that is really impactful about this camera is that it also is it has a big effect on the industry, even if you don't shoot it. Like as somebody that uh, works with other people's photography at Stocksy, mm -hmm. you must see a ton of 5D shots come through, right? Yes. And it's really, it's, it's kind of fascinating that you asked that because um, I've noticed in the past year or so that a lot of people have abandoned it. Right. For, for what mostly? Micro, for everything. Surprisingly, Fuji's. Oh, okay. Which that is, I that is, that is not what I would imagine to replace it, but no, I think it's just because people wanted to get something that was more compact and, and lighter that they could move around with. Yeah, that's my assumption. Them. And you know, for stock, I mean, you can you can use a Fuji for a lot of things and get away with it. I would still prefer to use, you know, like a Canon or a Nikon myself, mm -hmm. uh, especially with a low light. Yeah, I, I, none of the, I mean, spoiler to this whole review, but none of the modern smaller cameras can replace what these larger cameras do for me still. There's a place for just having a camera with you so that you can capture the moment that presents itself. It's a whole different story when the camera you have needs to just be performing for hours at a time in any condition and really reliably. So that's what the 5D is and uh, you know what, what other Nikon similars are so re remind me what am i comparing this to the whole time is this like the 810 yeah i guess it, i guess that's really the only one that you could compare it to because right. um, the 750 is is a semi-pro camera i guess right. well we already decided it's the 7d mark ii of the bunch yeah, so exactly and so i guess you'd have to say the 810 but you know the 810 is you know it's 36 megapixels so, yeah. yeah, I guess it's that's the closest we can come. It's a, it's a ridiculously awesome camera. One thing I always find really interesting is to look at the, uh, who is it that publishes this? The photos that won the most awards from the world press uh, each year. Mm -hmm. And Petapixel covers this each time. So they always have this blog post with a breakdown. And here, I'll send you the link so you can see what I'm talking about. Uh, with just a simple graph of what were the photos taken by on, on most of the award-winning things and every year the current 5d has by a large margin the most photos and that does not mean it takes the best photos it just means that like the widest sample of professionals uh happen to be using it obviously there are many nikons in the mix as well that the photos are no you know worse or whatever 
There are 15 5D Mark III award-winning photos from 2016 and four shot on the 5D Mark II. So, you know, altogether that's 19. And compared with Nikons, there are four on the D810. There are two shot on the D2, two shot on the D700. Uh, Nikon's actually much more fractured. Canon's much more split between just these few. So, um, but I mean, the point is, is that where this camera goes in the, the design of its features and how well it performs ends up impacting so many photographers. And that's why I, that's a lot of the reason I want to give it extra attention. Um, I have one and I I got it from Jordan on, well, as close to day one as I could. I came back and I kind of want to go through it feature by feature and talk about what I do and don't like about it. We've already talked about video quite a bit, but main thing that this camera is to me is a stills camera. That's why it was worth pre-ordering. That's why it's the thing I'm going to be using all the time because I couldn't replace it with the a7R2. I was really excited about the idea of having a smaller portable camera become an everyday and it absolutely cannot keep up. It is not fast enough. That always seems to be the problem though, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, same problem with Fuji's. It just never saw any use because it was not fast enough. And that's what I want from a digital camera. Yeah. I mean, the time it takes from a cold start when it's just sitting on your desk off and you pick it up and take a photo that needs to be really quick and reliable. If it's not, it's not an option for me. I can't, I can only use it for casual shooting. I can't count on it. So let's start by talking about uh, autofocus. This was a really important piece of the puzzle for me. Um, Mm -hmm. And something I've complained about a bit. I say, you know, generally I don't shoot any lower than 2.8 with autofocus because I, I can't really trust it on the 5D Mark III. Mm-hmm. It's unreliable, and I've been really excited about the fact that the A7R II can have that accuracy. Yeah, I, I really, I, I can't even imagine having that problem. The, they, the 5D Mark III d- made a big improvement with its autofocus, but it, it just wasn't quite enough. And from, yeah, what I've heard with Nikons, they've kind of solved this for a little while. Yes, I've micro-adjusted all my lenses. I have a measurement chart to do it as precisely as possible. <laughs> and I have none of those. Yeah, and it is noticeably off. Too often. Like, I mean, it will get f- photos in focus, mm-hmm. but too often it's incorrect. So 5D Mark IV does solve this in two ways. It has the on-sensor autofocus of the dual pixel thing that, that, that Canon's been working on for a while, and that has been really impressive. It's really fast, as expected, it is also really accurate, just like the A7R. The point being that if your focus detection happens on the image plane, on the image sensor, it has to be accurate because it's not separated, which is what a normal DSLR does. The autofocus sensors are not the same sensor. So if there's any misalignment between the lens body and the, or sorry, the camera body and the lens, then it can lead to focus issues. So that's not possible when you're doing this live view autofocus. The downside is that you got to be in live view. The screen doesn't tilt, so you have to look at it at certain angles. Obviously, there's no EVF because this is a DSLR, so you can't look through the viewfinder and use this mode. You can only do it looking straight at the back of the camera. So it's accurate, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't have all the upsides I necessarily hope for. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be the kind of thing that I will probably make a decision like, okay, this next photo, this is going to be a 1.4 photo. I'm going to switch modes and I'm going to set up to shoot this way. I'm going to prepare myself to shoot shallow depth field. And you're going to force it. Yeah. But, but it'll work. I didn't really have that option. Well, technically. Well, another interesting 
difference between the Sony and the Canon is that I can't I can't just choose the focus point in Live View and then keep focusing on that one area. Like let's call it the center point. Mm-hmm. I can't just always say, okay, just always focus on the center point in Live View. I have to either use the touch screen, mm-hmm. which works pretty well, but I can't control the precision. So if I'm looking for an eye and I touch somebody's face, it's going to start tracking their face. And the tracking works great. They can move around the scene. It'll stay on their face. It'll keep focusing there. But I don't have a way of knowing if it is going to decide to hit the eye or the nose. Right. Which when you're wide open, that's Yeah, that's the whole problem. Uh, In in the few tests I did, it did work really well. It it got it right. Um, This is the kind of thing that it'll take months of doing it over and over to know if it's really reliable. It's a huge improvement since it's the camera I'm going to use all the time, I'm glad to see that it's there and there is an option to get that accurate autofocus. I, I hope it works out. Me too. Because <laughs> you have so, you're so excited I know, about it. I know. Well, and so many other people are so excited. Totally. It, it, I think it will. And I also know that the standard autofocus, like the traditional DSLR set a point, focus on that point is clearly better too. I haven't necessarily been able to explore all the ways in which it's better. Again, this is part of doing an early review, but I did shoot at night, like just, you know, in the streets with a lot of shadows. There's virtually no light falling on the subject. And mm-hmm. it, it was extremely reliable, all at 2.8. And it was, you know, 80, 90% accurate in near dark, which that I know is better than what the Mark III was able to, to do. It, I couldn't capture those images accurately mm-hmm. or reliably. Deep exhale. Yeah. So th- that was a huge <laughs> relief. Like I know that the lower light improvements are there, especially on the center point. So yeah, if you're shooting low light, count on the center point or the ones nearest it, and that's where you'll get the most reliable measurements. But that was a big step forward. So at least there's that. Uh, so I noticed something on the 750 that that bums me out that I didn't really. I mean, I, I noticed it right away, but I don't know. I guess I was just like, I wonder how that's going to affect me. But it's the D750 doesn't have a back focus button. It has an, oh, you know, an AD, right. You're a fan of those. Yeah. And, I, you know, like when I'm using it for um, shooting theater production, so it's like live action in the dark, <laughs> that's when I, I really mm-hmm. love it. You know, like I, I finally used it for one of those shoots the other day, and I was missing that. Uh, granted, the, you know, the focus, the autofocus system just using the shutter release button is, is pretty much perfect. You know, I actually missed probably like three shots with a DF and missed none with the D750, mm-hmm. regardless of the not having the, the It seems like it'd be really hard to get used to, though. I mean, like you have this motor behavior of hitting a certain button and all of a sudden it's gone. Yeah. And you can't reassign yeah. it. There isn't another button you can replace it with. Maybe. I just, I, you know, I think that, you know, I, have, I still haven't read the manual, which is weird <laughs> because usually when I buy a new camera, like I, I yeah. read the manual twice. I read mine before it came out, so... Yeah. <laughs> like that's ever since I got my first digital camera, that's just been like a practice or a habit mm-hmm. of mine. Um, just because I wanted to know what the thing did. You know, it's amazing how much I actually learned about photography period from reading manuals, mm-hmm. even because when you go back and read a manual to a new camera, 70, 80% of it is the same from the last camera you just had, you know, like so much of the yeah. text is just like, this is what, aperture priority means and this is what auto iso is and sometimes you're like wait why did i (laughs) (laughs) yeah but you have to read through all of that to find the one detail that like no but it works differently in this particular way and i think it's good even as somebody that's comfortable with the previous cameras 
I'll learn things about my last camera because I more closely read the instructions to the new one. So yeah, I read your manuals. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> okay, kids, read your manuals. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, there. I still I still don't use that button, and I don't know. Maybe maybe I could. I've got a, a few. Uh, I've got an unassigned button right now, so maybe I could uh, put it to use. Yeah, I really, I really like it. I really enjoy it, and I, I mean, I haven't even looked to see whether or not I could assign the the auto exposure lock to that. Probably can, but another thing that's interesting about the autofocus changes is there's a 150,000 pixel RGB sensor that is only used for autofocus now. So I think it basically used to be a more or less black and white, really low resolution, simple focus sensor that could not tell what the image was. It's basically looking for certain patterns in the world or certain types of contrast, but it couldn't tell what you're taking a photo of. And now there's a dedicated sensor. Uh, This is what, like 0.15 megapixels. They can do some basic stuff like face detection. And so now when you're doing the full what do you call it? The, where it chooses the focus point, you know, like across the whole screen tracking, it does see faces and prioritizes them over and on, which is something that so far I'd only seen in the LCD based ones, like similar to Sony's, uh, where you're doing live view. Yeah, that can track a face because it has the whole image to look at. So in your standard mode of shooting, there is a way to recognize a bit of a face, hopefully find an eye. I'm not sure if it's doing that. In my tests, it, it worked pretty well. It did prefer a person over an object, which is exactly what it should be doing. So even though I don't usually shoot in that mode, it's really smart that it's there. And I think for sports photographers or, or people that rely on the camera doing the tracking, it's going to help a lot. Fascinating. I also want to go back to the touchscreen a bit more because I did not expect to enjoy a touchscreen this much. I'm still, I'm still getting my, I'm still wrapping my mind around well, it. Cause you, none of your cameras have had this yet, right? Yeah. No. I was not excited about it. This was a non-feature to me really. And after a couple hours of using it, I was trying to poke my Sony. I, I have instantly got <laughs> used to it. And the biggest reasons are, for me, are actually menu navigation. The fact that you don't have to scroll through things. So if I'm on menu one right now, I need to get to menu five, item four. I can just mm-hmm. touch twice and I'm there instead of scrolling two or three times on dials that there just isn't that same mental connection in navigating a menu of like, moving these these big dials is much slower than just touching it. And that's where I really liked it right away. And if you activate the quick menu on the back where, you know, you have all your menu items on the back of the screen, same thing. You don't have to mm-hmm. use the jog wheel to jump around it. Just yeah, just it. touch the one you're going to change, touch, touch, touch. That is the m- most useful thing about this to me. That's fascinating because I mean, it's generally been one of the reasons why I've kind of hated on Sony all this time is because, you know, I didn't like the way that... The, that their menu system. Well, and it makes deeper menu items less of an issue to get to when you can go so fast. It a, a deep menu becomes a little less of a problem. Canon's always had better menu systems than Sony. Um, I, that's never been a real complaint about the cameras, but it it just mm-hmm. got a lot better because of the touch screen. I think so. Also, I really like I get this satisfaction out of hitting the play button when you record a video with it and you hit play. It's it feels so appropriate. Like it's like my iPhone. And that's the one that now on my Sony video comes up. I see a big circle with a play and I can't touch it. I can't do anything with it. And it just feels wrong. <laughs> so that's, it's kind of raised the bar for what screens should do. And I do feel like I need to, to see everybody else gradually move in this direction. This is going to be part of our future cameras. I'm absolutely convinced of it now. Oh yeah. There's, it seems pretty obvious, yeah. right? Um, 
One thing they got wrong, though, that I think Sony got right, and tell me which Nikons are doing this, but is the flip-out screen. For a long time, it was kind of considered a real prosumer feature. It was on lower-end SLRs, and now it started to move up. I mean, the Pentax medium-format camera, the 645DZ, uh, I don't remember the name, the the Mm -hmm, medium-format Pentax, that was the first time I really loved it. You flip it out, and it feels like a traditional medium-format. It feels like shooting with a Hasselblad, and you're holding it at waist level and looking down. And now I've started shooting like that with the Sony as well. I'm convinced, I'm sold that this is a pro feature and it is the way forward. You know, Jordan kind of talked me into it when at first I was like, you know, I'm not that disappointed, but he reminded me of how great it is with others. And he's, it's it's true. This, this is the way it should be. Yes. And I I, very much the same as you, I was just kind of like, well, I don't know about that. You know, when I first saw it, I thought like, you know, when I first saw it on the D750, it was like that and, you know, the the fact that it had an auto option. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just these little, like, prosumer features. Yeah, it's easy to get turned off by them. Yeah, and it didn't have, like, the 10 pin on the front, or, or you know, or the, the flash sync on the front. And I was just like, what is this? This, you know, like, <laughs> is this a natural light-only camera? Well, so w- um, which cameras do have it in Nikon? As far as I know, or the only one I... I know that the 750, obviously. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the A10 yeah, has it. I, I suspect it doesn't. Yeah, I don't think it does. And I know that the, I don't think that the, uh, the D5 has it either. Uh, so, yeah, in the future, every screen is going to be flip out and touch screen. This, it has to go that way. It does. And let me tell you why. It's because, you know, like, especially for, for what I do, right? Like a stock, you know, it's still in fashion to do overheads. And it is a million oh, times yeah. easier. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> with the of course, yeah. All of a sudden, it's it, yeah. it is parallel to you. The screen is looking at you while you hold it overhead. It's a huge difference. Yep. And you can focus where you yeah. want, and you can align it, and it's it just it's well, a huge. Well, this is another difference. place the touchscreen made a big difference right away. This happened to me yesterday. I was doing some overhead shots. You know, they were just kind of quick point and shoot stuff. And I yeah, I realized I can turn on live view. I held it up, and I couldn't see the screen. The, that that one piece was still missing, but I knew. Basically, what my composition was: turned on live view, turned on tap to to shoot. So every time I tapped a focus point, it would take a photo, and this totally changed how it works. Oh, it was great! I mean, I knew that every single shot was in focus, and they were afterwards. It was amazing, and I only had to roughly look through the viewfinder, know that I'm pointing at the right thing, and keep tapping and tapping and tapping. And yeah, because normally you'd be, you know, you'd you'd touch the live view. To focus, and then you'd have to move your hand to the well, shutter button. But it used to be that in live view, there was no reliable autofocus at all. So you'd right. kind of have to manual focus it. If if you wanted to use the live view to compose, you'd have to struggle through focusing, or you don't use the live view, shoot blind, and basically trust the autofocus. Like you'd have to set the autofocus to a whole bunch of points in the region <laughs> of the photo and keep shooting until something was in focus. I got to shoot hundreds of photos just to make sure I got something in the end. Cause I had no idea. Yeah. It's actually, it's funny. Cause uh, I have this story where, you know, with Stocksy, we did this Thanksgiving shoot mm-hmm. in Toronto and because we had a number of shooters, you know, like I was pretty much focused mainly on just doing overheads because there was going to be a lot of people doing other things. So that was like what I was going to do. And so the only way that I could do it, and mind you, I had my DF it was the only camera I had with me. And so I had to put it on uh, on a, an extension pole to get it up and over, like towards the center of the table. And then I had to use a cable release to focus and shoot every shot with blind, completely wow. blind. 
And like, I mean, literally the camera was like a foot above my head. <laughs> yeah, real trust exercise. And I was on a, your camera. And there. I was on a ladder. And like my, I tell you, like my arm was dying <laughs> after that. Like the cable release thing yeah. worked, but how awesome would that have been if I could have flipped a screen to see? Well, hold on. It gets more awesome. This is how you would have shot this today. You'd have somebody else helping you. You'd have an assistant holding that camera out and booming it. And now you've got Wi-Fi on the 5D. You would be streaming the image back to your phone. And on your phone, you can touch to focus and you can see the composition. But yeah, you touch to focus and it'd be shooting. You'd be shooting on your phone the whole time and just saying, you know, a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, a bit higher. And you just keep shooting and you could see exactly what's happening. You could, you could show them what's happening. Honestly, that photo you described, you would shoot it completely differently now with relative ease. Yeah. I struggled. Yeah. Like the next day I, I could barely move my, my <laughs> well, now you can make somebody shoulder. else do that for you and you just hold your phone. <laughs> there was a lot of sweat equity that went into that shoot. <laughs> well, and that's also a, a way of shooting video. That's helpful. But just while I'm mentioning it, that it's really great that you can have somebody else operating the movement of the camera and you can be watching it and just touching to focus on, uh, on a mobile device and kind of following that person around. So it, it's good to have that split brain between one person. Th- this is how video works at, in higher ends. Is there's a focus puller and a camera operator, and they're not the same person. One person is only looking at if the image is in focus, and the other person is only looking at how the camera moves and how it's the composition and the framing. And um, you, you can now do that pretty easily with Wi-Fi. You can do it with Sony as well. That's pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's it, it's really exciting. Technology. It's It's like, it's... On the, at the same time, it's it's intimidating and bothersome to me. Because you have to learn how to do all these tiny tricks? No, no, because those tricks are easy to learn. It feels like it's easier to learn how to do things. So do you resent you know? the easiness, or do you resent having worked so hard in the past? No, I don't resent. <laughs> I, 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 re, I guess I resent the fact that like other people are not going to have to work oh, as right, hard yeah. as we do. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure people in the past worked harder than we do too. So, oh, there's no question, right? So I guess that just keeps going on. So like, it's always the the previous generation of photographers that are crying foul and, <laughs> and whining about exactly, everything. Yeah. yeah, and it's just like I'm. I'm like, okay, how close to that am I going to get before I figure things out? Seven frames per second instead of six. Hmm. Okay. I mean, it's the number is small. Seems like a small difference, one, but I felt it right away, and I appreciated it right away. Cameras, yeah. They, I mean, they should be shooting faster. It's always helpful. You, I use burst mode all the time. Yeah. So yeah, I, I really appreciate it. Like one per second means a lot more options, and means this is a viable option for a lot more sports photographers. Uh, it's honestly, it's going to be a, a huge improvement for every everybody where does the nikon d710 fall because you said it's pretty fast right yeah 750 uh, okay <laughs> <laughs> you know i i think that it's more than that it's something i don't use so hold on i'll tell you i don't understand why i can't get nikon straight like i think it's just because it's the one that I, it's the only brand i don't read any news about i only read news about <laughs> the other brands because i'm not i just don't need a nikon in, unless they get really experimental I don't need an icon, so I always no. You don't about it. Um, it's six and a half frames per second. Okay, okay, so they're you know comparable. That's... And I mean, that's I think that at twenty four megapixels, that's that's fine. That's yeah, enough. I mean, the D five is what like is it also twenty four megapixels? It's a it's a twenty yeah. right. And same with the one DX Mark two is less megapixels but much faster. 
those are both of those. Yeah, 20.8 megapixels at 12 frames per second. Which, you know, I mean, I I totally respect, like, why that would be amazing Mm -hmm. for somebody that needs, you know, to capture really, really fast action. But for me, it just means more editing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, journalists, yes, you you do need that. And uh, Mm -hmm. portrait photographers, food photographers... Mm -hmm. Oh. Uh, no, you got to ca- capture that, you know, flying onion uh, being chopped in the air. <laughs> it just sounds miserable. Like, and I guess unless you wanted to, like, you know, if there was some like kind of awesome chef that's like chopping things really mm-hmm. fast, and you want to capture all of it, whatever. Well, another <laughs> thing I appreciate about the Canon is this was already on there on the Mark III, but is the ability to shoot in lower raw resolutions. So you know, they still mm-hmm. have raw medium and uh, small that's something that has really made the sony a bigger burden to me that a lot of the times i do not need full resolution i I mean with events nobody needs 40 megapixel files it is only a hassle it is not helpful the files are too big they take up too much hard drive space i mean it would be different if i could quickly convert them to a lower size DNG inside of Lightroom without doing anything crazy, but you can't. There's there's no quick way to downsize a raw file. Why? Yeah, why, why not? It, I, I know it can be done. It almost seems like the camera companies have asked mm-hmm. the software companies not to do that uh, so that they could sell you two cameras. Uh, I mean, that's really, I mean, isn't that the, the gimmick right now is just like finding reasons to, to make you yeah. buy more cameras that you don't yeah, need? It seems that, well, I mean, they're, they're struggling to sell uh, the numbers they used to. So, uh, But I, I, I did read an article, I think I sent it to you, about how different raw sizes aren't truly raw, but specifically medium and yes. small, are doing something more like the lossy raw that uh, Adobe does. I never read this before. I can only find one article on this topic at all. So I don't know if it's true yet, but right, but it makes it look like it's Yeah, that basically it's not holding on to the highlight detail the way that raw is. It's sort of like a compressed yeah, file. Compressing the uh, so range. I'm going to I'm going to do this test myself when I remember to and uh and, yeah, yeah, and, and try to figure out if it's true. I mean, even if it's true, I will still use medium raw because it still gives you the flexibility of setting white balance in post mm-hmm. and I've never noticed it. I mean, I've been using it for a few years and I've never noticed that loss in quality. So obviously it's not that bad, even if it is a bit worse. So yeah, I'll continue using it either way, but I do want to know if if I'm losing something or not. And I'll, I'll get back to you guys on that. Yeah, no, super interested yeah. in knowing. So this all matters because they've bumped the megapixels up to 30, which is mm-hmm. a great bump from 22 on the Mark III. This keeps it competitive to uh, everything else in its class. In my opinion, I, the difference between 30 and 40 is not important in virtually any application so many people are confused about why why you want megapixels on the camera i know that most people i talk to excited about 40 megapixels aren't going to use it there are so few yeah, people that I put it to it. use well and it also it forces you to have the most premium lens, yeah right? yeah exactly it unless you have the sharpest lens in in whatever focal length you don't see it i mean the kit lens the 24 to 105 l which is you know meant to be a professional mm-hmm. lens. It, a it does lens. not resolve sharp enough for even thirty. I think it's it's too soft for thirty. Like it worked, be- it worked well yeah. at twenty, but it's that's why they updated it. There's a you know, there's a Mark II of it now because <laughs> it's not. Uh, yeah, I, I just think people are it's so weird. confused about why they need more megapixels because um, you don't unless unless you actually do. Yeah, it's 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 interesting also because one of my um, a friend of mine that also does similar work that I do locally. 
He does a lot of theater performance. He was just going through this thing where he, he decided that he didn't want to shoot Canon anymore. He just changed his mind. And I don't know why exactly. Like it was kind of mm-hmm. random, but he, he posted on Facebook. He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to ditch my Canon system. And I'm going to, I'm thinking about going mm-hmm. Nikon. So he's looking for recommendations. And, you know, I, I told him the 750 and I think that a couple other people did too. So he was looking at it. But then I just talked to him yesterday, and he, it turns out that he ended up going with a D3S. I used a D3S, mm-hmm. which is 12 megapixels, you know, with like 13 frames per second. And I was kind of like, you know, I was like, oh, well, no, that makes sense. I mean, it still has really good low-light performance, and it's it's super fast and has great tracking mm-hmm. and everything. You know, and then he's told me that he got the uh, 28 to 300 uh, lens, yeah. which is a... Like F5.6 yeah, or something? Well, it's an F4 to 5.6. And and I was kind of like, oh, and he was like, I know. Uh, he's like, I never thought I would move away from a fixed 2.8 zoom. And I'm like, and? And he's like, well, it has the VR. And he goes, honestly, I'm loving it. <laughs> and then I thought about it and I was like, well, yeah, I mean, on 12 megapixels, it probably doesn't make a <laughs> yeah. difference yeah. at all. Interesting. It probably looks mm-hmm. great. So <laughs> he can jump, you know, he's told, he told me he's like shooting at, you know, at the worst, you know, he'll, he'll set his ISO to auto ISO. And at the worst, he'll allow it to go to 6,400, mm-hmm. and he still gets yeah, usable stuff. Like I say over and over, I've been shooting so much at 4.0 lately. Like the 24 to 105, that's the main lens I've been using for the last month or two, just because of circumstance. Like when we were traveling, 7,200 was a bit too long for the smaller streets that we were in, so I needed to go wider. And God, that lens is so useful. 24 to 105, 4.0, it's incredibly mm-hmm. powerful. Like, it is just exactly what you need in so many circumstances. And it's stabilized. Um, yeah, I, you know, there's so many cases yeah. where you don't need 2.8. So we were actually about to get the Canon 24 to 70 when mm-hmm. Anya went out to pick up the 5D Mark IV. And we had talked about the 24 to 70 2.8 quite a bit. We're like, yeah, well, we will get it eventually. And she saw it. She was like, should I do it? I mean, I'm here. Like we're already, we're already <laughs> blowing all our money on this camera. Spend yeah, the money. Yeah, exactly. It makes it feel so much easier, but we didn't end up doing it because for one, the 24 to one five has been doing right. I mean, I've just been quite happy with it and, and I'm going to wait for Sigma to do it. That's, that's really what I realized. Sigma's <laughs> going to do this better. And, and, and cheaper. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's going to be 30% cheaper and probably sharper. So uh, I'm totally happy with this 4.0 lens for a while longer. I don't mind holding out fascinating <laughs> yeah which i i had be, i'd thought of it as a pro-am lens for uh years and i've just become more comfortable with it lately just it's so funny because as soon as he said 28 to 300 yeah. part of my brain is this an expensive lens just, no okay. not really i mean it's probably like 600 800 yeah. bucks or something huh. like um <laughs> part of my brain just started to unravel you know like like fry yeah. just at the the thought of 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 a a lens that had that much I, reach just because it's, it sounds like it's going to be yeah. horrible, but it also sounds really exciting. I mean, I borrowed a friend's, what was it like 18 to 200? I don't know, like some EFS mount lens a long time ago, shooting an outdoor wedding. I borrowed the super zoom and put it on the 70 Mark one. And it is so fun to shoot with that much range <laughs> when you can just punch yeah. in, you know, 500%. Um, and if, Oh, hold on. Sorry, this is it's it's a thousand dollar lens. Okay, wrong. so I mean mid priced, mid price. It's not but it's not cheap. Okay, it's so not, it's a it's a three five to five six. Yeah, like, yeah. 
But the other thing about it is that it's lighter than my right, 2470, yeah. and it's lighter than my right. 70 to 200. And you know what killed me on the one I was using though is the chromatic aberration. Uh, it really does fall apart; like the image falls apart really quickly. Um, so it's it's kind of soft. You can get over that on 12 megapixels, maybe. But yeah, the the purple fringing is is crazy on these cheaper lenses. Yeah, well, this one this one has the ED glass, the extra low dispersion, which you know for Nikon's that means very little mm-hmm. or very easily correctable, if anything. Okay. So, you know, now I'm now I'm kind of curious. <laughs> just like, oh, just for that, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I wouldn't use it any other time. Yeah, no, I. But like, if you could have. Yeah, I mean, if you could have one lens that would cover the entire job and you didn't have to carry two bodies, mm-hmm. um, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I have to. <laughs> I just, I, you know what I love about it is that if you look on the Nikon page, you know, you can tell it's it's consumer to prosumer mm-hmm. because it says, you know, under the features, it says versatile 10.7 oh, times yeah, zoom times. lens. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I, I tweeted about this the other day, but I want to draw attention to it. The all the marketing behind the new iPhone two lens system on the iPhone seven plus everybody's mm-hmm. been talking about this amazing new two times zoom, which is just, I understand why they do that because that's how normal people think, but this is not zoom. This is not zoom in any way. There's two cameras with two lenses and one is a 56 millimeter, like a portrait lens. And one is a wide yeah. angle lens. They're lying. <laughs> But no, no, no. So I, I don't blame Apple. I blame consumers for not understanding, for being like, oh, yeah, so I'll take my normal photo and I'll just get closer. Like, that's what they're excited about. It's not that, like, there won't be this distortion and that it's much more flattering with people. Like, all the things that are actually exciting about it are not Zoom things. They are new lens things. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So this this one was super exciting right when I started taking photos with it. The shutter sound that started as I was taking my first batch of photos, I was, took them and I'm like, you know, that sounds pretty good. Oh, wait a minute. I'm clearly, I'm on silent shutter. Let me, let me see what the real shutter sounds like. And I go to check and I, <laughs> I wasn't, I was, I was just shooting normally. Oh. And um, yeah, they, they have a new mechanical uh, motorized shutter control that slows the mirror flap as it uh, opens so that it, it smacks less hard. And um, this is meant to, I think, improve the total shutter life, but it also has a side effect of it sounding quite a bit quieter. It's, it really is noticeably quieter. It is not as quiet as silent, I, I realized after I tried it. And just for everyone at home, if you don't realize how important this is, it is it's not just like a geek mm-hmm. thing. This is actually something that is can be terribly distracting oh, yeah, it, in the wrong situation. <laughs> totally. And and can make you you know public enemy number mm-hmm. one. Yeah, when you t- you don't want to be turning heads at a at a wedding in the middle of a ceremony. Yeah, I mean especially if you're God forbid shooting in burst mode. Yeah, exactly. But that's the thing is, so now you can shoot in high speed burst with, I don't know, call it thirty percent quieter shutter speed. I don't, I don't know what. I and I'll take it. It's really nice. <laughs> and it was funny. Anya's comment was that it sounds like a Nikon. <laughs> she's always really liked the sound of Nikon's more than Canons, and she's like, I like it. It sounds like a Nikon. Yeah, I I still feel like there's I don't know like Canon's body design is I, I think is sexier, but I still just I'm attracted more attracted to Nikon. I think it's the gold ring over the red <laughs> ring. <laughs> yeah, and it all comes down. Well, now that we're all on Sigma's, does it really matter? 
No, because I like the the hard black all yeah, together. Yeah, I really like the black. Really big improvement, an important improvement is the ISO invariance. So <laughs> yeah, the ISO invariance is is massively improved on this, which is what, what the everybody else about? has gotten better at lately. So this is the ability to shoot at a lower ISO, fix it in post, and not have any perceptible quality loss. Oh, and so like underexposing it and then bringing yeah, it exactly. Up? So the sure. difference in your shadow noise. This is it's all in the shadow noise. This is why it's important. You expose mm-hmm. to your highlights, let your shadows go under, bring it up in post, and it looks as good as if you had just used the higher ISO. And this was not the case on the five D Mark III at all, or that generation. Right yeah, is that as you brought shadows up, there'd be all this crazy banding. And really colorful noise that draw. Yeah, I know exactly. Oh, yeah. So it, it wasn't, you still would shoot like this. I mean, underexposing on digital has been better for a long time, but now it's gotten, it's become a real tool. And so uh, in the, you can see really great tests of this on DP review and they mm-hmm. c- compare the Nikon 810 <laughs> Mm-hmm. And right, the uh, 5D Mark IV and 5D Mark III and the A7R2. The A7R2 does the best. It it It's still... No, wait, the A10 did... Okay, the A10 and the A7R2 are very similar. So they both did better than the 5D, but the 5D is now comparable. It is in the same realm. You, you, can, you can shoot this way, and it, it basically means you have more dynamic range in mm-hmm. in your camera in every photo. Yeah, so basically, you can now ignore... The whole shoot to the right mm-hmm. nonsense because yeah. that's yeah, it, it, I said it. I said it, it on our show. It was always nonsense, nonsense, and now it's like really nonsense. Uh, you can yeah. under I, the tests I saw. I mean, it looks like three or four stops is is really safe if you're at a low ISO. So if you're shooting at 100, 200, 400, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you can bring it up at, at least three stops, and it will still look great. So totally, I can I can bring up you know three or four stops regularly mm-hmm. if I have to. And not that, not that, that, you know, that that's something that, that I shoot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I try to nail exposure. You, can, yeah. you know I mean? I, I still think that that's the, the best yeah, way But there just are those cases where it's, it's a bit too backlight and you just, you want the photo to turn out. You don't want to give up the clouds. Uh, yeah. And when you're in a, a, a nature situation, yeah. I guess, you know, I was actually just talking to this with my team just about shooting in the yep. forest. You know, I was just saying like shooting aperture priority, set your EV to negative two and just start there. Just start negative two and adjust as necessary, but you're probably going to be a lot better off. Yeah, in and any high contrast lighting situations, so even with you know really harsh sunlight on a person, if you want to be able to bring back some detail in their eyes and make it look less shadowy. Yeah, because you'll be amazed how much detail you can bring out of the, the shadows versus the detail you lose in the highlights that cannot be yeah. recovered. So this is something that is just necessary in all new DSLRs, and I'm glad that Canon was able to keep up which they should have. So, yeah. So, if you're shooting a hybrid of film and digital, so you basically have to turn those two theories right, upside down. It. Yeah, because when you're shooting with film, you want to, you know, you can overexpose and you should overexpose pretty much all the time. Um, and it's the opposite. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, with shooting log video on a Sony, it is like film though. You'll you overexpose because all the noise shows up in the shadows. So. Uh, basically, check your camera to know when to do which thing. <laughs> know your <Yeah>. shit. <laughs> uh, also, with ISO, um, high ISOs look very good. They don't. It hasn't changed the world. I mean, it's 
it's, you know, gotten about like a one or maybe two stops improvement. Um, it doesn't look as good as the Nikon, but it's close. So I don't know. It's moving forward. It's not news. Uh, what was news though, was the dual pixel raw mode. And you know what? Nothing's changed since I got the camera. Cause I still didn't try it and still don't care. I saw everybody's <laughs> tests about it and it looks like you can basically get a couple meter millimeters of focus adjustment, which maybe I'll use the, like if I'm, if I'm doing some really important portrait that I have one shot to get it right and I need yeah. to nail that focus. Yeah. Okay. I'll just switch to that mode for safety. So I can make a small amount of change, but I have not seen one yeah. test that makes this look like it's a significant feature. Doesn't um, the Pentax K1 have that too? I don't know. I mean, I heard the Pentax K1's amazing, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, so cool. it's the first like full frame Pentax that, uh, and they yeah, nailed it. <laughs> that everybody should be looking at. I, 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 l- I have two friends that have oh. it, and I've and I've seen yeah. results, and the the rumors <laughs> are true. I mean the stuff coming off that sensor is just absolute perfect. Everybody's doing so well these days. It is not a Nikon and Canon world anymore. Not even close. No, it's not. No. In fact, it's become a big yeah, mess. It's much more confusing. <laughs> world. It was easier. It's it. Yeah. And it kind of reminds me of the end of, of the film era when, you know, you could buy so many different brands and get a, a good quality outfit. And then digital came and it, it just Nikon and Canon just yeah, owned ran away with it forever. And then, you know, it seems like Fuji opened the door and then Sony busted everything through. Mm-hmm. And now everything's just totally different. And, you know, the thing about it, it, you know, for me, I think it's probably not just for me, but for a lot of people is that you invest so much in glass that you're pretty much just, you know, to, to, to change kits for me would just be a devastating it would cost me. Yeah, a I, well, I don't even consider it. The only reason I considered getting the Sony is because I could adapt it so easily. I got what a few more. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> uh, okay, this is another one I haven't tested yet, so I don't have that much to say. But uh, it's USB three instead of USB two. Uh, or is the Nikon? I, I don't know how many are doing this, but so my question about it is tethering. I've always hated tethering. I don't do it because it slows me down too much. I the time between photos is too long. Like the the right delay oh it's so yeah slow. i don't know how so many people are okay with it everybody i talk to that shoots tether doesn't even seem to notice but and also i yeah. might add that most of the people that shoot tether typically because of the what they're shooting um are using a higher or a higher megapixel camera which slows it down yeah further. totally uh yeah. yeah there's nothing worse than you've just suddenly taken a few too many photos and you're like wait everybody stop and watch yeah, the computer yeah. to see a few more photos roll in before we can take another photo. No, I've, I've had, I've had that situation on a, on a set with, with 12 oh, people. God, it's awful. And it, it happens all the time. Everybody just lives that. I don't understand why, but okay. So yeah, we got <laughs> USB three. I don't know, but I'm hoping and assuming this means it should be much, much faster. I mean, USB three is a huge jump from two. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll report back if I ever bother tethering but i I will i want to try now because i want it to be useful there are so many times that it would be better to be able to monitor as you shoot but i I just you know hasn't worked out yet maybe maybe now you you don't do a lot of still no yeah but but portraits in studio that's why i mean like fashion lookbooks um yeah it's so impersonal well it's about it's about the client being able to see like there are i've been on other people's sets that do shoot tethered um and the client just 
expects it. It's it's a requirement. You don't get to decide not to to shoot that way. Yeah, I think that's kind of why I stopped shooting portraits, or at least mm-hmm. headshots. Because clients? Yeah. Well, because they're like, oh, let me see, let me see. And it's like, no. Right, yeah. No. This is for my eyes only. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to show you the back of my LCD that's going to not show you what you yeah. want to see. Oh, hey, that reminds me. The LCD looks awesome on this thing. Uh, my first impression was that it was... It was taking better photos. I was like, wow, do these photos, like, is there something different going on here? Is this a new color space? And then I popped in a memory card of stuff I'd shot on the Mark III. And I was like, oh, wait, this all clearly looks better. Like, I, I immediately noticed a difference in just the what was coming out of it. it the, the screen is brighter and sharper. And I think it's interesting that, that, you're, that, you're, uh, that the cameras are able to read the same photos taken from different cameras. Yeah, it didn't even blink. It was just totally happy with it it's, it's pretty wicked because the nikons don't do that with other don't. nikon oh yeah because i assume what i th- i think what it's doing is that there's a sidecar jpeg preview basically isn't that right. i i thought that's what it did and so it only had to read a jpeg if it was there but i'm i'm sure every camera does it differently so okay the last thing i've written is also not something <laughs> i have anything to say about flicker reduction this is a good idea i ha- i had this issue uh, just a few weeks ago shooting under some fluorescent light. Um, with the Sony, I came back and discovered there are all these crazy lines. And it's really smart the way they do this. Basically, the camera can see the wavelength coming through of the flicker and times the shutter release to to go when there's minimal light distortion. Again, I didn't use it yet. Samples I've seen online look great. And uh, I, I, I won't use it often, but whenever I see that flickering pattern uh, from fluorescence. I'm, I'm definitely going to flip to this mode and I'm glad it's there. And that's all I have written down. And I, I wrote a whole review. So actually I have a lot more written down. Um, be, Could we, are we going to find that yeah, on your blog? Right. So just go to stallman.com and you can find it there. So <laughs> you got it all uh, out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure there'll be follow-up, but uh, that's, that's all I had for now. What, what do you got anything else yeah. to say? Well, I've got something that I'm pining for, but, you know, I'm I'm actually the the only reason I want to bring it up is is I'm kind of hoping that somebody can talk me. Oh, about okay, it. I'll try. So Nikon has made the very first 105 1.4 mm-hmm. ever, and you know, just looking at everything, the specs on it, it looks like it's probably the most perfect thing hmm. ever. <laughs> most perfect. What about it is so perfect for you? I mean, it sounds nice, but you tell me. Well, for one, it's you know, it's it's a one four at one oh five, which nobody is uh, Yeah, which just doesn't got. happen. Yeah, so this is new. And so okay, so I have the the previous version, which is the one oh five F two uh DC, which is a, just a, a killer lens. It's one of my favorite lenses. I just really I've I have i have mentioned a number of times how much I love that focal length. And um but the thing is about you know, you shoot it in contrasty light or something and and if you're wide open then you see some pretty you know pronounced green in, in magenta fringing mm. which sucks especially like if you're if you're trying to use it for creative portraits or something like that and you get this huge uncorrectable yeah, sure yeah <laughs> um magenta you know or green all, all along this their chin or something like that it looks ridiculous um so this one apparently um is is perfect in all these regards. And 
Yeah, ex- the thing is, you know, I mean, and and you know, for as is as uh, amazing as it sounds, you know, on paper, uh, it's not actually ridiculously expensive. It's only it's twenty two hundred. You know, and um, you know, I say not ridiculous because you know there there are other lenses that I've I've been curious about from Nikon over the years, and some of the classic ones like the uh, the twenty eight one four D. You know, you can usually find that used for about three three or four thousand dollars. Well, why, right? It's a twenty twenty eight. Yeah. Like what? <laughs> why is that four thousand dollars? I mean, it's like you know, it's it's a legendary lens, but you'll never, I'll never know because I'm never gonna even think about that. Um, for a 28, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and also there's the, um, the 5812 knocked, which is, you know, a, just a really fascinating sounding lens. And because it's, it's one of the only Nikon primes that are, that is that fast that actually works wide open. So you can shoot it wide open and it has great contrast and, and, you know, great sharpness wide open, which you know, for Nikon's classic lenses, that was not really something you could expect. Mm-hmm. You're usually going to get soft and and pretty uh, dicey. And so, you know, for this to be priced at 2200 seems, you know, pretty reasonable to me, actually, for what it's accomplishing. Well, I'm looking at some samples um, right now, and they, they look really, really good. Um, yeah. The, the, the background and, is just nothingness. <laughs> Just pure bokeh, like so, so, so soft and creamy. Yeah, and just the idea that you could like walk around with this thing and shoot it at night mm-hmm. <laughs> and just go ape shit. Yeah. You know, it just sounds like a lot of fun. Um, but the, the, you know, the downside is the size. It's huge. Oh, it just looks, I mean, if you compare it to all their other primes, it's, it's just, it's twice mm-hmm. as large. Uh, hold on. Let me see if I can find out what the. Uh... Here I'm on. I'm on the site. Uh, it says approximate weight thirty four point eight ounces. Yeah, nine nine hundred eighty five grams. Yeah, three point seven inches by four point two inches. Yeah. What is the uh, the filter size? That I don't know. Compared to the previous, it's eighty two millimeter. Pretty chunky. Yeah, that's 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 bigger than than any other lens yeah. I have. Like my biggest is seventy seven, and that you know. So when you think about that for for a prime lens, eighty two millimeter for a prime, yeah. it's a big big mm-hmm. element. <laughs> well, and you know, so my 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 fear is that like, well, okay, so I have this huge piece of glass. You know, how how are people going to react to that? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it'll definitely freak people out if you point it at them. Yeah, they're gonna. Oh my god, you're gonna see through my yeah, soul with that. You thing. Probably will. You'll be right. But so I'm really on the fence man i'm like i'm thinking about all the the you know the lenses and maybe blood or kidneys i can sell if you want me to try to actually talk you out of it uh, i mean this uh, images look great this does sound like a really nice lens the only way i can is that uh, i'm currently selling my canon 135 (laughs) Mm 2.0 which is a great really equally great lens it's just over a thousand dollars and i just never use it so that i don't know that's my argument (laughs) Well, see, and that's, but, that's the thing. Use the I, I use my, idea. yeah. I, but I, it's weird because it took me a long time to, to learn how to use it and to, and to enjoy using it. You know, but I'm, you know, I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> I have two one oh fives. I have the macro and the, the portrait yeah. lens. So, well, yeah, I mean, this is, this is your, this is your jam. So, 
So maybe you yeah, need it. Maybe you need to so sell the other two. Would the other two pay for it? Well, I, I can't sell the macro. That's that can't. That, I, I need that one for doing food and and also for scanning right. film. Um, but I I could get rid of my uh, eighty five millimeter tilt shift. Yeah, yeah. I and that I'd would get rid of my ninety cover. millimeter if anybody was interested. <laughs> it's uh kind of perpetually been for sale for a year now. So yeah, nobody yeah. wants it. I think that maybe what I could do is is you know it's not an easy task, but maybe I could figure out, you know, like a new thing, new way to shoot with that and, and make it really hip <laughs> through Stocksy or something right, like yeah. that and make people want to yeah, shoot yeah, it. Just, and then I'd be yeah, able to sell I mean, it. if you include some really nice sample <laughs> photos in the, in the ad that, and that's the thing I worry about with the one Oh five is like, is am I trading one gimmick mm-hmm. for another? Cause at the end of the day, there are kind of just gimmicks, right? Are they, I don't know. Do you, you tell me, you seem to think it's, a regular part of your arsenal. Yeah, I think it just depends on how you use it. You know, like when I look at some of the uh, some of the sample picks from this 105, I mean, technically they look amazing, but, you know, would I shoot like that? There is such thing as too much bokeh, by the way. <laughs> I'm seeing it right now. I, yeah. When there actually is, just there's just no detail at all. And it's just, it's a bit mushy. Um, mm-hmm. But that's more, that's a creative, I feel like that's a creative mistake. I don't mean to say mistake. I mean, a poor creative decision because you can have that much blur and it looks, be, I, the, there's in these samples, the image with the foliage behind the tr- the leaves look beautiful. So it just depends what is blurring out. It does depend on what it is. But I think that one of the problems is that, you know, once the photo becomes of a less than ideal quality, and that just opens that space up for a lot of problems, like banding or mm-hmm. something. You know, I mean, once a client takes your photo and does something to it. Right. It might tear it apart. You know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And then who knows? I don't know, man. I might have to, like, You know what? There's no something. rush. That's that's what I've learned is don't buy it until you need it. Mm-hmm. Or do. I don't know. You what know, have I learned? I may never buy it. <laughs> You know, this is the thing: is that the 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 one or the uh, the, the one I have now, the two point is is really light. It's super lightweight. Went mm-hmm. so that's that's the thing. Am I gonna trade <laughs> that one extra stop, or not even a full stop? I don't, know. I don't know. You have to tell us what you do. I'll keep thinking. All about right. It. Well, I I did my thing for today. It's the five D Mark. Yeah.